now that we feel warm and fuzzy about Jesus, I'm going to try to change that. Because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says some hard things. Jesus says some things that we, if we read them seriously, we, we scratch our heads. And, and uh, I'm not going to be able to go into detail line by line here because we are in the book of Matthew from Advent to Easter. And doing that just on Sunday mornings from Advent to Easter, it's kind of like a trip to Israel. So much to see and hear and understand and dig into and so little time. And so what you're going to want to do is read along with us ahead of time. The best way to do that, ah, you're going to need that white card again. You know that one you lost? That white card. You're going to need that because you're going to want to say, I'd like to receive the BP Blast because every Thursday we'll send out an email and it has just a few up-and-coming things that are happening the weekend that you don't want to forget about. And one of them is we will tell you what's coming up in that Sunday's message so that you can read the passage in advance. Uh, like uh, it, it's, uh, it's Matthew 5 and the first half of Matthew 6 today. Next week it's going to be the second half of chapter 6 and chapter 7 with one of our elders, Dave Brown. And uh, then the following week will be between Matthew 8 and 9. And so we're not going to be able to cover those sections exhaustive, but if you have read in advance, you're going to get a lot more out of it as we try to put the bigger picture together or, or drill down within a particular part of the passage when we're together on Sunday, all right? So another way you can be sure you know where we're going to be in advance, well, you could read the whole book of Matthew every week as well. That would be good. But if you want to get that BP blast, use the white card for that as well. Now then, where are we in Matthew? We are in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, these, as I put out on the, on the signboard, the, these are things you know that may be wrong. We know some things about the Christian life. And unfortunately, over time, and because of habit, and habits can be a good thing. You can form good habits. But habits can end up becoming a lot like filling squares. And what Jesus is saying ultimately here in this section we're looking at today is throughout the square. The Christian life is not at all about his platform for the kingdom is not at all about filling squares. He, he takes what we know, he takes what those that he addressed in, in that day knew about what it, is, what it was to believe God and walk in his ways, but he, he digs deeper into it, much deeper than they realized. It throws the square filling out completely in the process. We're going to see that we are going to, we, we live today in Jesus under new expectations. We live in a new hope. We are to live as God's light by living out his word. We live by a new rule. We live rightly without living religiously. We live out a new life that he has given to us. So with that, with that basic division, with that framework in mind, I want us to turn, first of all, to Matthew 5, verses 1 to 16. We live in a new hope. We live in a new hope. Matthew chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he taught them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the oppressed, those who are, who are downtrodden under Roman authority in particular, in this case, a Roman military rule, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Abraham's promise will be true. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, in this case especially justice. They see injustice all around them and and their hearts cry out, it isn't supposed to be like this. And they hunger and thirst for Messiah's kingdom and for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's not yet. They long for it. But they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When the children get insulted, picked on because of their faith, because they and their family go to church, believe in Jesus, that happens and it will happen. And when they they do, they are sharing something with Isaiah, with Elijah. Now that's bigger than little kids realize, but Jesus says it's true. The same way as you, they persecuted the prophets before you. This is no surprise. You are the salt of the earth. See, they'll tell you differently. They'll tell you you're the problem. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything. It has to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine. Before others, don't be afraid, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And the way that Peter says it in chapter 4 and 5 of the book of 1 Peter, whether, whether it's now or later, they will, because of what they've seen of God's glory in your life, they will give glory to God who is in heaven. Live under new expectations. The New Expectations concerns this whole idea of blessed. I saw something on Facebook. I think it was this last week. One of those things that somebody shares, somebody it got written somewhere a long, long time ago when people bounce it all around. It was one of those things. And uh, normally I don't pay any attention. This one I, caught my eye. It said, I wish we'd get rid of this whole blessed thing. How are you doing? I am so blessed. I have got this new, well, it's 2004, but it's new to me. I've got this new Jeep. You know, I had, a, I had somebody run into me out on the freeway, but out of it, for just $100 more than what I got in the insurance payoff and selling the old car, I got a Jeep, and I am loving it. The snow came, and I went. It was wonderful. I am so blessed. Oh, really? So all of you that suffered around with, a, with a, maybe a Buick with rear-wheel drive, you're not blessed? What do we mean when we say that? Is blessed related to, we normally use it in those terms, things are going well, I am blessed. Jesus turns that on its head. He says when things are not going well, when the bottom has dropped out, when you are enduring severe persecution, when God's will is not yet done on earth as it is in heaven, you are yet blessed. That's what Jesus says. It's not, you, he doesn't say you will be blessed because your reward is great. You will be blessed because you will inherit the earth. He says you are blessed for you will. See, there's something about God's blessing in 
the waiting in the not yet realized, in the suffering that is before the glory. The American dream is different than that. The American dream presses towards the goal, presses towards the fulfillment, presses for all that we want and hunger for. We want it now. We want it in a microwave moment. And we're going to be waiting a while. Blessed are those who mourn. Really, we had too many funerals this weekend. And we do mourn. Dean Wallace is here. Give him a hug. You get a chance before you leave this morning. Blessed are those who mourn. God knows what it's like. God was separated from his own son who stepped into this mess of mortality for us. And in the midst of our mourning, we are experiencing also something of the heart of God. When your heart cries out, it isn't supposed to be like this, you know what? You are agreeing with God. When your heart cries out, I'm hungering for justice. This is not enough. It's not enough. It doesn't satisfy because you alone can satisfy. When your heart is in that place, you are blessed. You are hungering for what you ought to hunger for. That is blessing. To be satiated with the wrong thing. It's kind of like the child that got into the chocolates before dinner. He's not blessed. He thinks he is. But he's not, and he's going to be sick. It cannot satisfy. That's not what, we really, what he really needed. God will not, in fact, allow us to be satisfied with something lesser than himself. That's what we were made for. We live in, in, in a new expectation. Those who have been rejected as insignificant by the world, therefore, are to be salt and light in the midst of the world, in the midst of our hunger, in the midst of our mourning. We are extending mercy. We are making peace. We are being merciful toward others. Rather than proud, we are meek. Rather than pushy, we are pursuing righteousness rather than gain or advantage. We reconcile rather than manipulate. We seek the good of others even as Jesus sought our good. Why? Because my confidence is this. I'm on my way to glory. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is coming his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and I can pour out my life. I don't need to, to pursue all of my vain and empty ambitions. I can pour out my life because it will be worth it all when I see Jesus. There is a day coming that none of this, the best of it, not the cocoa nor the puppy kisses, none of it can compare with. We live in a new hope, even in the midst of trouble. Now, that life in Christ, this being salt and light, is not instead of how God has revealed himself before in the Old Testament law. Actually, it's in complete harmony with it. I said we live under new expectations, which fills out our lives in a way that the law by itself does not, and that people take law, they take an understanding. We love a list. I can meet that. I can do that as long as I do these things. Remember the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, you know what the law says. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. He says, but I have completed all of these things. I've done all these things from my youth. 
I've kept the law. I've filled the squares. I've ticked the boxes. And Jesus said, well, one thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. You come follow me. What is Jesus saying? Fill out the law this way in the whole meaning of it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Rather than that stuff and love your neighbor as yourself. And he went away sad because he had too much to give away. He had too much to let go of. This new life in Christ, it's in harmony with the law. Look at verse 17. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Do not think that in this, in this list of beatitudes, simply forget about what Moses said, just be meek, hunger for righteousness, uh, be a peacemaker. I'm not giving you a new law in place of the old. That's not what Jesus is saying. He clarifies you. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Now fulfill them first, as Romans 10.4 says, that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I will not be righteous before God. I will not be acceptable before God by what I do and don't do. I am fully righteous before God. Now, some of you who know me better are saying, no, I am, really. And it's not about me. It's about Jesus who died for me. I stand before God fully accepted in God's own Son, Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus as your Savior, you do also. We do not do anything to earn God's approval, to make him like us a little bit better. Not at all. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in Jesus. And yet, the law doesn't then just vanish. The law has always been a very accurate expression of the character and nature of God. And so it revealed very well where a fallen and broken humanity falls short of that. And Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish that. I come to fulfill that. And then I will then fulfill and I will pay for, I will die for every requirement of the law. But the law still stands. And not merely as a list to square fill. It stands as an expression of the character of God. Not one in the ESV, it says, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Some other translations say not a, not a jot or a tittle, whatever that is. I meant to actually put a picture of this, and I didn't, so you don't have that to go to, but a, <coughs> I'll talk us through it. The, the, the uh, yod or the, the uh, iota is a, it's the smallest Hebrew letter it's not even the size of a normal letter. It's more like the size of an apostrophe, okay? That, so the very smallest letter, and then the tittle. What is a tittle? Well, some of you that know something about fonts would know what a tittle was. A tittle is kind of like a serif. A tittle is the little bump at the end of a letter, and some letters you can only tell one from another by a, just a little corner that sticks out on one that the other letter that's kind of like that doesn't have. Okay? It's kind of like the difference between an E and an F is one little line, right? I'm thinking a capital E, a capital F. One little line differentiates those two letters in English, right? That's kind of like a tittle. So the smallest consonantal letter of the law or even the smallest part of a letter will not pass away until all has been fulfilled. Jesus said, I didn't come to take away the law. He came to endorse it. 
He said, therefore, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the only way that'll happen is if your righteousness is in Jesus, believing in him. We cannot measure up, and, he's gonna, and Jesus is going to show just how hard it is. Look at this. You have heard it said to those of old, this is the Moses commandment, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. Say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Have you ever had the conversation with somebody about the need for salvation in Christ? And they say, well, I'm not that bad. I haven't murdered anyone, right? Well, have you ever hated anyone? I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, oh, goodness, too bad the kids already left. That'd be a good one to ask them, wouldn't it? What about you? I could ask my sisters this because we had some hair-pulling matches when I was younger. Not anymore, fortunately, but man, we had our times. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, you imbecile, will be liable to the fire of hell. Whoever attacks the human character and dignity of another. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. We are guilty. You see, he goes beyond the express to the intention, to the core character behind the law of Moses. So if you're offering a gift at an altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar. Go, be reconciled to your brother. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then come and offer your offering. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out of it until you have paid the last penny. He says keep short accounts. Seek forgiveness. Seek peace with one another. Often we think, if God, if, if, if God just wasn't so picky, and so the Pharisees adjusted the law. They said, as long as you fit, meet this, as long as you do this, you will be okay. Jesus is pressing past that a lot further. For instance, this, this, this uh, you remember your brother, you, you come to worship, and then you remember somebody has an offense. Let me describe it this way. If you're sitting in worship with critical thoughts about the worship leader, about the songs that were chosen, about the person behind you who sings off key, about that woman three rows up and what she's wearing. If these are the things that are going through your mind, you're not sitting in worship. You're sitting in judgment. Jesus presses beyond the command to its intention. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, verse 27. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman lustful, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Remove the temptation. This is serious. And it goes beyond what you might do. It's inside our heads. It's what we might think. I remember, this was years ago now. This was in the 70s. Then President Jimmy Carter gave an interview to Playboy magazine. One of, one of 
several perhaps lapses of judgment by President Carter. Why he chose to give an interview to Playboy, I don't know. But they asked him the question. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a nice Southern Baptist man. Still, I think, still teaches his Sunday school class. Jimmy and Dave. And they asked him this question. Have you ever lusted in your eyes after another woman? And President Carter admitted, yes, I have. Oh, that made a big scandal. Well, the scandal really was a politician in Washington told the truth. Because you have two. You have two. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, throw away your cell phone mistress. Throw away any temptation because it eats against your soul. Verse 31. Okay, I'm going to meddle some more. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. Oh, that's convenient. That's neat. America wasn't the first to come up with no-fault divorce. They had it in the first century. Whatever, if you just don't like the way things are going, no problem. You can divorce. I divorce you. Just make it official. For her protection, Moses said, you had to give a certificate of divorce. So the woman wasn't just left without anywhere to go and stuck in a marriage that she had been pushed out of, but still technically she couldn't then be married to anybody else. That's the way they met that need. Don't like it anymore? No problem. Walk away. I'm not going to get into all the ins and outs of when divorce is permissible or not. I'm not going to get into that this morning. That's not my intention. What I'm going to say is this. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is pressing back to the original purpose of marriage, which the two become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. And he's not actually, in this passage, I don't think he's asking, he's answering a question about when is divorce permissible. That is not the point. He's saying if, if there hasn't yet been adultery and yet you divorce because you don't like her cooking and you send her away then to go find somebody who does like her cooking, you have now made her an adulteress by joining herself to another man when she never should have been divorced from you in the first place. That's what Jesus is saying. He's going beyond the intention. What the Pharisees have allowed on their technicalities has never been God's intention. Why does that matter? Because God is a covenant-keeping God. And our covenant in marriage is meant to, is divinely intended to teach us something about God's covenant with his people. I am grateful that when we are unfaithful, God still remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. I'm, I, 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 I would want to Insist to you today that marriage is serious business. The marriage you are in today, keep it, if at all possible. The marriage you're in today, keep it. I'm not going to judge you beyond that. The marriage you are in today, keep it. Cherish it. Nurture it. And in that, know something about the covenant faithfulness with God 
Read the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea. You want to see something about God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people because God puts it in very human terms. It is possible to live out the character and nature and mercy of God. What about oaths? What about promises? You have heard it said, verse 33, that you shall not swear, swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. If you swore an oath, you got to do it. Fortunately, I had my fingers crossed. He said, yeah, we talked about that deal, but I didn't put anything in writing. I didn't sign anything. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a man or woman of your word. You see, because God is. God's word is trustworthy. God can be relied on then. And we show we are light in darkness. We are the salt of the earth. We, we are a city on a hill. We are, we are light to those around us when we show, not when we're well behaved, when we show something of the character of God. When we inexplicably still show something of the character of God. And we extend mercy when, there's, when no one would expect it. When we tell the truth and we are bound by our promise even at our loss, we don't try to wiggle out of it because, but we'll see it through anyway. That shows something of the covenant keeping, the reliability. I've got to keep my word here. Why? Because God keeps his word and I'm made in his image. Retaliation. Verse 38, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Endure injustice. Blessed are the meek. You, in enduring injustice, in enduring oppression, you are tasting something of what Jesus bore for us. Could it be that in what is unfair, what is not right, what shouldn't be, and I shouldn't have to stand for this, but when you do, could it be that God has given you the privilege of tasting something, just a little bit, just a little taste of what it was that his Lord, his Son, our Lord Jesus, did for us? Wow, that is blessed. If we taste something a little further of what it was that Jesus did for us, that is worth it. Because I, I fall in love with him all the more because of what he did for me. Like Jesus, I can then love my enemies. The Pharisees taught Israelites, Israel to love Israelites. God taught Jonah to love Ninevites, their sworn enemy. The Assyrian people who would one day not in, in the too far distant future swarm over Israel with horrible atrocities, and yet God sent to them through Jonah first, a hundred years ahead of time, the opportunity for forgiveness and to receive God's mercy instead of his judgment. Would you do that? Would you find a way to extend God's mercy to somebody who is apparently your enemy? You don't want them to be their enemy, but they don't like you. And maybe it's because of who you are. Maybe it's because of something they see of God-likeness, something of Jesus in you, and they don't like it. Would, is that the person you would pass along a business lead to that could lead to their advantage? Why don't you take somebody who is outspoken in their political views that are contrary to you? Why don't you take them out for lunch? And when you do, don't debate, please. Indigestion. When you take them out to lunch, learn something from them. 
What in their story causes them to feel that it's supposed to be that way? Learn something from them because I guarantee you, you can. We might be surprised. We live with a new expectation. We live in a new hope. We live as God's light as we live out God's word. God's word and the attention of it, the character of God that's expressed there, that is living by a new rule. And finally, we live rightly without living religiously. We live out a new life as life that he's given, not a religious rule we should follow. Look in chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now that's difficult. Didn't he just say, let your light shine? Didn't he say, you're the salt, be salty? And yet, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. We live for them, before them, so that they might see something of God, but not that they might applaud us. Okay? We live for the purpose of being light, not for the purpose of being appreciated. And he fills this out in, a, in three different ways. Therefore, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites in the synagogues or in the streets, that they may be praised by others. You see, they're really saying, oh, it's a celebration. We're giving to the needy. Oh, it's wonderful that their needs are going to be met. No, look at me. I've got something to give. Let's just don't. Don't do that. Do it quietly. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know, in giving in the church, I don't know what anybody here gives. I know what Julie gives because we're kind of in on that together. The rest of you, I, I haven't got a clue. I wonder sometimes because really our giving is one of the ways that we do, we do uh, live out our Christian life. And so it's something that perhaps shepherds need to know something about, but I'd rather take that on a conversation with you rather than by looking at the books. I've never known that in terms of people here in the church. Who gives what? Nobody needs to know. You know, you, know, you can give $250 at a time. You can give $250 every Sunday, and you don't even need a receipt. You can put cash in the envelope. Nobody would even need to know who it was from, and you can still claim that on your taxes at the end of the year, according to the tax law. Now, they might be a little suspicious of you. Really? You say you gave $250 every week? But the church record could easily show, yeah, there are several people here that actually do that every week. And so uh, we, we don't know who they are, but we know they, people do, and these are regular attenders, so I guess they do. That's, that's the regulation. I don't say, say that so you can do that. I'm not trying to mess up the whole finance team or anything. But uh, I say that to say that we don't keep track of that. We don't. The right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. That's a good thing. But the Lord knows what we're doing. And let our giving, whatever it is, be an act of devotion and worship to him. It is not a bill to pay. It is not a percentage merely to keep up with. But I give out of what God has given me, entrusted me as stewardship. I give that to him as my reasonable act of worship in response, in right response to all that the Lord has done for me. I can never pay it back. So I will just exercise a stewardship that includes the gospel ministry of a church and missionaries, outreach in the community, and so forth. And it's something I want to be a part of because I want others to share in what God has given to me. When you give, not so others see it, but in devotion to God alone. Look at verse 5. How about this one? 
chapter 6 and verse 5. And when you pray, not like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen and heard. Oh, wow, did you hear his prayer? Oh, my goodness. No. He said, go into your closet. Pray quietly. I would still encourage you, when you pray, pray out loud. That's why you got to go into the closet. If you, weren't, if you weren't praying out loud, you wouldn't have to go in the closet. You could be right in the middle of the room, right? And nobody would hear you because you're praying just in your head. But when you pray quietly in your mind, your mind wanders, doesn't it? You will find you'll wander less if you're praying out loud. You know, if, if you want to sketch out an outline for the things you want to cover, we just, this, in the men's group on Wednesday night, we're, we're doing kind of a free-flowing, um, kind of a, a workshop on prayer for the next several weeks. And we're taking about about 15 minutes to, to go over a particular instruction on prayer or an example of a prayer in Scripture, a psalm, something that will give us a template for that night. For instance, this last week it was the Lord's, um, it was the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer. Jesus says, pray this way. He doesn't say, pray these words. We didn't use it as, these are the words to pray. But the same kind of things that Jesus lists in that prayer, those are things we should include in our prayer. Temptations I face. Attack from the evil one that I'm experiencing or asking him to keep me from. His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, so then his will to be done in my life. God, show me your will that I can step into it. So those things that we pray for in, that are listed, he taught his disciples to pray about, those kind of things. So you can make yourself an outline. I want to pray about these things. Pray out loud. And it doesn't mean that then you can't pray with others because doesn't the Scripture say, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another? And there is strength there. But there has to be a little bit of trust if you're going to pray openly. And then we're not doing that for each other to hear how well our prayers measure up. We're not going to grade each other, right? We are going to pray together. We're going to agree together. We're going to pray for one another together. But all of that for God to hear because that's who we're praying to. And when you fast, oh, wait a minute, I forgot what country I was in. And when you fast, you don't know what fast is. You, you thought fast was a shorter sermon, right? <laughs> when you fast... Do not look gloomy. Fasting is, is denial. It's giving up something. Maybe I won't eat for a period of time, or maybe I won't eat certain things for a period of time because my body will rebel against that very, very quickly. And like Paul, I will be buffeting my body and making it my servant, reminding me that I am denying, I am practicing self-denial as a spiritual exercise, a spiritual discipline. And when I'm praying about something in particular, something serious, that fasting reminds me all through the day that I'm supposed to pray. And it reminds me to pray. My stomach can't help but grumble about it and say, Bob, better get praying because I want us to get prayed through this so we can eat again. It's a good thing to practice self-denial. You will find if you practice physical self-denial, another way to fast is something you could have, something you could buy, something you could enjoy, and you decide, I'm not going to because I'm going to bless somebody else instead. I'm going to do with less so that I can give something to somebody. I can extend mercy instead. That also is fasting. That also is stepping into denial. It is good for us to practice denial because our, our body, our flesh, our natural humanity wants and craves, and we are in a society that attacks that. The world knows that, and the world entices and, and tries to convince you that you can find your fulfillment in something, but you can't. It will not satisfy and practicing self-denial is stepping into walking with Jesus.
So when you fast, don't put on a show that everybody knows, look at me, I'm denying myself. Oh, you should honor me, you should recognize me, you should applaud. You will have received your reward. But when you fast, anoint your head. Wash your face, comb your hair. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. I had a friend. Offered, I, we wanted to get together. I said, hey, let's do lunch on Thursday. This was another friend, John. John and I do lunch on some Thursdays. I'm thinking, talking about him now. Somebody else. And he said, well, I fast on Thursdays. So it's like, oh, okay, now it's awkward. Well, I'm not fasting on Thursdays. And he's pointed out that he's fasting on Thursdays. Should I be fasting on Thursdays? I, I wasn't sure what to do with that. That was uncomfortable. He could have just said, no, no, I, I can't do it on Thursdays. Thursdays don't work for me. We, we, we do lunch on a different day instead. Wednesdays, let's go eat with the seniors. Lunch is free and it's wonderful. <laughs> they'll, they'll, okay. When you fast, don't do it openly for the benefit of others. Do it internally for the benefit of your own soul, in self-denial, pressing you closer to the Lord who loves you and gave himself for you. These things I will do. I will pray. I will deny myself because the first 11 verses are true. I am blessed in Jesus, even in the midst of denial, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of injustice, even in the midst of oppression, even in the midst of I being marginalized and the people saying something... I am blessed because I am the favored child of the only true and living God who loved me and gave his son for me, and you are too. Nothing can hold a, hand, a candle to that. The song we're going to sing in just a moment. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Nothing else can satisfy Nothing else would hold me up. I'll stand on Christ, his righteousness, and his promise. It will be worth it all when we see him. Father, would you then receive that which we now give? Would you hear the prayers that we would offer, even those prayers that we would pass along on a white card to share with others? Father, what we would deny ourselves for, would you take that use that for your glory. Father, would you this week use these, your people, as salt and light in this community that desperately needs to see you in us for your glory and for their good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>